We love convenience, don't we? I mean, what would life be like without Amazon? Does anyone even remember what it was like without Amazon? I mean, you do probably, but it's, it's so darn convenient. Anything that makes life easier, less cumbersome, we love. Can anyone, can anyone remember what life was like without a smartphone? I mean, I, I, have to like, I have to like labor to convince my children there was a time when you didn't have the whole world in your pocket. I, Alyssa and I were telling the other night about our first cell phone. I think I was 21. 21 when I got my first cell phone. And it was this old Motorola flip phone with a little antenna that you pulled up. And uh, it was pretty cool back then, but my kids would be embarrassed if their dad held something like that now. There's a Taco Bell commercial that I saw the other, the other night. I thought it was pretty clever and, and pretty funny. It showed a picture of a, mount, of a rock climber, and, and he said, I dream of reaching the highest peak. You guys know this commercial? Then it shows this scientist in a laboratory saying, I dream of creating robots to, you know, to help make the, li- make the world better or quality of life better or something like that. And then it showed a guy sitting on his couch saying, I dream of having Taco Bell delivered to my home. And the doorbell rang. It was Taco Bell. Only in America, right? I mean, only in this day, only in the 21st century in this nation. It's the American way. We love convenience. The 1828 Webster's Dictionary defines convenience this way. It, it defines it as that which gives ease or the freedom from difficulty. There's nothing wrong in and of itself with convenience. I mean, those who wear glasses, you are, you're, glad, you're glad for that convenience that you can wear glasses, that there's something you put on your face to help you see better. The problem is when we have no patience for things that aren't convenient and can never be made convenient. Uh, in fact, the most important things in life are expressly inconvenient, aren't they? I mean, think about friendships. Friendships are amazing. We wouldn't want to go with, through life without them, but they're not convenient, right? If you, if you have a deep friendship, it's, it inconveniences you. It takes time and energy and resources to be a friend with that person or those people. A marriage. Marriage is the most precious relationship, that human relationship. It's why it describes Christ and the church in, the, in terms of marriage, because That's what we think of when we think of the most intimate kind of relationship. Well, a marriage is amazing, but it's not convenient. There's a a phrase that says a marriage of convenience, but but marriage in God's eyes is not a convenient thing. It calls men to lay their lives down. It calls wives to submit to their own husbands and love their husbands and so forth. Having children. I mean, was there any, ever a married couple that said, you know what? You know what we need to make life a little more efficient around here? Is we need some little people running around <laughs> that poop their pants and ride on the walls and cost a lot of money. <laughs> children are amazing, but they're not convenient. Education and learning is not convenient. Ha- having a job that you work at and that you do well at is not convenient. Most of all, following Christ and growing in godliness is not about convenience at all. In fact, in one series of encounters in Luke chapter 9, Jesus has three men come to him successively. And they say basically, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus' response, I mean, he responds slightly different to them, but it could be boiled down to this. His response essentially was, are you sure? Because following me is going to be very inconvenient for you. Well, in our text today, we see the clear and present danger of looking for or settling for a convenient Christianity. As we come to Acts 24, Luke, or, excuse me, Paul is, Luke writes about Paul being on trial before the governor of Judea. His name was Felix. Felix was a former slave who ascended to power and was made the governor of Judea, which was the region surrounding Jerusalem. Felix was, was not a good guy. He was a, actually a brutal man. He was full of greed and violence and lust. In fact, his wife here, named Drusilla, he, she was his third wife, and he seduced her away from her previous husband. This was the kind of guy that Paul was standing before. One ancient historian described Felix this way, described Felix as a man who occupied the office of a king while having the mind of a slave. He was saturated with cruelty and lust. So he didn't have a reputation of being a just leader, a good leader, a reputable, righteous leader. And yet this is who Paul's standing before. So the high priest and some elders and one of a spokesman named Tertullus came from Jerusalem to Caesarea, which is where Paul was being held, and they stood before Felix. And Felix heard the case against Paul. This is all the first part of chapter 24. And the case against Paul was basically, this guy's a troublemaker. He stirs up riots and trouble everywhere he goes. And Felix, it would be in your best interest to get rid of him. Felix heard their case against Paul. He turns to Paul and Paul makes his case. He defends himself. He refutes the accusations against him. He said, I don't, I'm not stirring things up. The, the guys who, who found me in the temple aren't even here. But if they were here, they would tell you that I wasn't stirring anything up. I was there quietly. And, and Paul gets to the crux of the matter. He says, the, the real issue at stake here, the real reason I'm on trial is because I proclaim the resurrection from the dead namely in Christ and all who trust in him. Well, it says in verse 21 that Felix had a pretty good understanding of the gospel message or the Christian message. And so he sent the Jews away and had Paul put back into custody with orders to let him you know, have some freedom and let his friends come and attend to his needs. Back in those days, if you were in a Roman prison, they didn't feed you. You know, you'd have to have friends come and bring food to you. So he, he was, Paul was allowed to have friends come and attend to, to the needs that he would have. But Felix wasn't done with Paul. It's very interesting. He had some level of intrigue regarding this apostle who had this message, the message of Christ. And so what Felix did was he arranged for a private meeting where he and his wife, Drusilla, could meet privately with Paul. And it says that they wanted to, or it doesn't say they wanted to, but it says they came to hear about faith in Christ Jesus. It's very fascinating. Verses 24 and 25 really is, I think, the, the, the crux of this entire chapter and this, this meeting where Paul is before Felix. And I want to just make three very quick observations from verse 24 and 25. First, we see that Paul, he's before this very powerful man who is an evil man. And Paul speaks a very bold message to him. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. One, quite frankly, that, that Felix needed to hear, but he didn't want to hear. 
Here's what it says. It says that Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix came to hear about faith in Christ. Paul talked about faith in Christ, but he went down the road of righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. I think we may safely say that Felix did not want to hear that message. That wasn't what he came to hear. We don't know for sure. Perhaps he wanted to hear, you know, Paul flatter him and tell him how great he was. I mean, leaders love to hear that, don't they? But Paul wasn't going to flatter him. He wasn't going to sing praises to Felix. Paul also wasn't going to itch the desire of Felix to hear some philosophical wisdom. Felix was a Greek. He wasn't going to wow Felix with his amazing spiritual experiences. No, he spoke the message that Felix needed to hear, and it was bold and it was straightforward. He spoke about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. I think about, I, I hear often, I praise God for this if it's true, but you know, our, our current president has many people around him, supposedly, from what I hear, Christians. And I hope that they're speaking to him in the same manner as Paul spoke to Felix. Righteousness, self-control, the coming judgment, and not just words of flattery. The second thing to observe here is we see Felix's conscience is severely pricked. In fact, more than that, I think it's like wounded, hardcore. It says Felix was alarmed. Now, the word alarmed, I think, seems to blunt the force of the original language. The Greek word is the word emphobos. Maybe you hear the word phobos. It's where we get our word phobia or the fear of something. He, this, he, was, he was alarmed. He, he had this fear, but the M, the E-M at the beginning of it, this prefix amplifies. So literally, Felix was terrified when he heard what Paul had to say. This seems good, I think. In fact, I would suggest that, that, that God's grace was coming to him to show him the serious danger he was in. As Paul talked about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment. The old hymn, Amazing Grace, we sang the first verse this morning. I think it's the second or third verse that says this, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace then my fears relieved." It's God's grace that the message of the gospel comes and it's... And it, and it troubles someone who is outside of Christ. It's God's grace to do that. And then, of course, that, if that's, our, that's been our experience, right? And then God's grace relieves our deepest fears. Well, God's grace was coming to Felix. He was deeply troubled, distressed. And yet... He didn't go to God to relieve his fear. Sadly, the third thing we see here is that Felix received the grace of God seemingly in vain because his heart is unchanged, or at least it's not changed for the better. If anything, it's changed for the worse. Because Hebrews 3 says, if you hear the voice of the Lord today, do not harden your hearts. And so Felix heard God's message to him. It was a bold message. His heart was pricked. He was alarmed. He was 
filled with fear, and yet he turned away and was not changed. There's this... um, there's this verse in Jeremiah chapter 8. I think it's verse 20 or 21, somewhere around there. And it says, uh, this is Jeremiah lamenting the people of God, the, Israel, or the people of Judah. And he says, the summer's passed, the harvest is gone, and we are not saved. And that could be saved of, said of Felix. God had come to him. God had come with this message of grace that stirred up this troubled heart, and he walked away unsaved. People can intellectually agree with and believe the facts of the gospel. They can even have a spiritual experience and an emotional response and yet not benefit from it. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said about this, um, this story of Felix or regarding this text. He says, It is wonderful to see a whole congregation moved to tears by the preaching of the word. But I know a wonder ten times greater than that. The wonder is this, that those same people should so soon wipe away their tears and forget what they heard. Wow. That's what, that's what happened to Felix. <clears throat> it's a wonder that a man this powerful should hear the gospel preached by Paul. I mean, this, this apostle of Christ, this man that had seen the risen Christ, sent on this mission, told, you're going to preach to kings. He was standing before one. And he turned away unchanged. Quite frankly, this is no better than the faith of, of demons. You know what James says? James chapter 2, he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Demons have an orthodox faith in Christ, a belief about him, I should put it, a belief about Christ. They even have a visceral reaction to Christ. They shudder. Remember in the Gospels, uh, the beginning of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus is just going from town to town, synagogue to synagogue, and there's, there's not a number of these these, these encounters with people that have demons, and what do the demons often cry out? Ah, you're the son of God. They confess him as the son of God. The issue is they don't love him, and they don't love the truth. There's no love of the truth, and there's no love for the son of God. Felix heard, he even trembled, but sadly he did not love the truth and therefore he he sent Paul away. And here's, the reason Felix gives for dismissing Paul is very telling. You know the reason why he sent Paul away with his troubled heart? Because it wasn't convenient. It wasn't convenient. Felix needed a more convenient time. That's what he says. He says, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. The NIV, if you have an NIV translation, it says, when I find it convenient, I will send for you. King James says the same thing. When it's convenient, I'll send Paul. What a tragedy. So people back then, at times, we're slaves to convenience as well. It wasn't convenient. One commentator called these words that 
Felix spoke the most terrible words in the Bible. Might be an overstatement, but they are terrible words. 19th century Scottish pastor and theologian Alexander McLaren said about Felix in this moment, this, he he said, it is the watershed of Felix's life that he's come to. The crisis of his fate. Everything depends on the next five minutes. Will he yield? Will he resist? The tongue of the balance trembles and hesitates for a moment. And then, but slowly, the wrong scale goes down. Felix says, go thy way. If he had only said, come and help me to get rid of this strange fear, how different things would have been. Well, interestingly, Felix had time to send for Paul several more times. We see that in verse 26. But he never found that convenient time to deal with the true condition of his soul before God. He just never found that time. As far as we know, um, Felix died in his sins. And tragic, tragic as it sounds, it's still common to this day. People are pricked there. God comes to them with a message, with a word, and, and it's not convenient. It requires going somewhere that's inconvenient to go. Here's what I want to do just with our remaining time. I want to look at the content of Paul's private message to Felix and Drusilla and what Paul does is he presses, he presses upon their minds four realities, four, I would, I would call them inconvenient truths. Wonderful truths, but inconvenient truths. Important truths. And we need these pressed upon us as well so that we may not settle for a kind of convenient Christianity. Okay? So the first thing Paul does is he speaks the message. He says the message of the gospel is about a righteous God. It's about a righteous God, which, quite frankly, is not convenient. Right? If, if God is, you know, if, if, he, if we can fold him up and put him in our back pocket, kind of take him out when we want to and, get, you know, help us feel a bit better about a situation or something, that's, that's great. That's convenient. But if we're talking about the God of the Bible... Paul wants Felix to know he is righteous. Paul reasoned, it says in verse 24, about righteousness. Paul is speaking to an unrighteous judge in Felix. And so undoubtedly, Paul reasons about righteousness, not in the abstract, but the righteousness of God. Paul wants Felix to know the God that he serves. In Paul's defense, he says, I serve, the, I serve the one true God, the same God these Jewish people say they serve. He says, Felix, I want you to know who this God is. He is righteous. Think of 1 John chapter 1. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. Well, I think we could say God is righteous, and in him there is no unrighteousness at all. 
Psalm 96 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. They form the foundation of God's throne. Righteousness, he is right in all that he does. Justice, he always does what is just and true. And here's the problem for Felix and for me and for you and for the whole world. God is righteous but I am not. And you are not in yourself and in myself. The Bible says God is righteous and it says all of humanity is expressly not righteous. And for Paul, if you read through the book of Romans, you know, I, have the, I can do this too, okay? But sometimes I just like to jump over Romans 1, 2, and, the, and like the first 20 verses of chapter 3, and just get to the end of chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, jump over 7, get to 8. You know, I mean, um, but if you read where Paul takes from 1 through 3, he labors this point. The biggest problem for Paul being a Pharisee is that God is righteous. And we are, well, a former Pharisee, is that God is righteous and we are not. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, There is none righteous. And lest anyone confuse what he's saying, he adds this, No, not one. Not one. And this is something you and I, Felix needed to know this, but so do I, and so do you. We absolutely need to understand this in order to have a real and true comprehension of the gospel. And to marvel at it and to rejoice in it. Because the gospel reveals fundamentally how sinners can be made righteous before God and therefore completely accepted. And we sang earlier about um, God is for us. You are for me, not against me. I'm not forsaken. It's built on this truth. It is. It's built on this truth. The gospel shows us that, that, that we cannot stand before God based on our own righteousness. We, we need to be accepted by God in another way. We need to be clothed with the righteous of another. Namely, the righteousness of Christ. Like we need an alien righteousness to come and clothe us. And that is the good news of the gospel. I have no doubt Paul, as he talked to Felix, said, right, talking about righteousness, he went here. You need the righteousness of Christ, this resurrected living Christ to clothe you. And so do I, and so do you. On Christ the solid rock I stand, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's a hope that can face any storm, any challenge, any difficulty. This truth of Christ's righteousness, clothing unrighteous people so that we could be accepted by a righteous God is, as John Calvin says, the hinge upon which all true religion turns. This is how we stand before God, confident and bold is because we know we are hidden in the perfect one, Jesus Christ, clothed with his righteousness. Now, is this truth convenient? No. Is it important? Massively. 
The second thing Paul talks about, he, he, he says the message of the gospel addresses our real sins. It addresses our real sins, which, again, is not convenient. That's what Paul was doing with Felix. Felix was this self-indulgent man. He was greedy. He had, you know, multiple wives. He just wanted the next one when, when, when it came time to wanting the next one. And, and, and so Paul spoke to the self-indulgent man about what? Self-control. Self-control. You and I also need to be addressed about self-control and forgiveness and kindness and thanksgiving and peace and love and believing the best and all these, all these other things. We too need to be addressed about these things. We too need at times our hearts to be exposed. Don't we? It's uncomfortable. It's not convenient at all, but we need this. To be saved, for sure. To be, I mean, to, to come to a realization of that we need Jesus, for sure, but also as saved Christians, as saved people. You see, for the Christian, walking with Jesus is a process of the Holy Spirit dealing with us as we really are. Renewing us day by day and conforming us to the likeness of Christ. And often, this is... This really impinges upon us. It's really inconvenient. Let me tell you, give you an example of the inconvenience in my life the other night. Thursday night, Alyssa and I were talking, just visiting up in our room. We usually have a date night, either either at home, kind of in a closed room, or we go out somewhere. And this was one of our nights in a closed room, just visiting and hanging out. And I was sharing with her, I was just part of a, a meeting, a group of people, and some of the things that were said and done and happened and the attitude and just really troubled me. I think it was legitimate concern and trouble. But my trouble and burden turned from genuine burden and concern to very quickly a self-righteous attitude. I didn't see it until Alyssa went to bed. And I'm sitting there by myself with this yucky feeling in my heart. Like, yuck. That's disgusting. And I, that's God dealing with me. It's not convenient. I had a hard time going to sleep until I got up out of bed and confessed it to God. And then the next morning, I didn't feel like it was dealt with completely until I confessed it to my wife, to Alyssa, and just said, honey, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. This process is called sanctification. You know, it's really the biggest part of the Christian life. Like we believe and get saved and Jesus is coming again and he's going to save us in the future. But this process right now is like from, from the moment we believe in Christ to we die or, go, or Jesus comes back, whichever happens first is called sanctification. And I, I would suggest it gets the least attention for Christians. There's, there's no shortcut for sanctification. You ever heard of a life hack? There's no life hack for it. There's no app we can put on our phone to help sanctify us. It just doesn't work that way. We can't take a pill to grow in godliness. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could, but we can't. No, it comes through a living faith in the living Christ and real grace-based effort. 
In other words, this faith, it's not an easy, convenient faith, right? Ease and convenience don't come into play at all. Our faith in Christ is not to be a lazy, sleepy, and presumptuous faith. Oh, yeah, I already know that. But a living faith, a lively faith in Jesus. Like abiding in him. Right? He's a living person. I'm connected to him. I'm abiding in Christ. And grace-based effort is empowered by grace for sure. We can't do it on our own. And at the end of the day, we'd look back and say, God did it. But it does feel like effort for us. We act out what God puts in. Listen to how Paul describes sanctification in two places in Philippians. He says this in Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 3. Paul says, not that I have already become perfect or already attained to it, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. So there's the reality of God putting in, but let me ask a question. God putting, working in us, but, but how, how do you do fear and trembling conveniently? If convenience is, is like, is like the, the priority, how do you press on conveniently? You just don't. And yet the road that leads to eternal life is the road of pressing on, and working out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is working in us. Third, the third thing Paul says to Felix is that the message of the gospel warns us of the coming judgment. Which, let's just be honest, is the most inconvenient thing ever. No one's going to be able to skip out. No one's going to play hooky. We'll all be there. Everyone who's ever lived will be. Paul says to Felix, there's a coming judgment. You will stand before your maker. You cannot live and do as you please with impunity. There is a day of reckoning coming. That's, I think, what Paul said. Something like that, not those exact words. But he talked to him about the coming judgment. Paul pressed this on Felix. And quite frankly, I think we need this pressed upon us as well. I think we need to, Christians need to, I mean, Paul thought about this. Paul said it motivated him. Certainly, we need to think about this in terms of our salvation and coming to faith in Jesus and and being saved from the wrath to come and hiding ourselves in Christ on that day. But also throughout our Christian life, the, the reality of judgment is meant to be a motivating factor so that on the great day of judgment, our lives may prove our love for Christ. I, I love him. And, and of course, there's going to be plenty brought up that's not so flattering. But, but our, our, that our lives really do prove, I trusted in Christ. I love Christ. We will stand before our Savior and Lord Jesus, and give an account. And therefore, every genuine Christian wants to please him, don't we? We want to please him. 
not because we have to, but because we love him. Out of gratitude, out of a thankful heart, we want to please him and we stumble and we fall, we fall short, but we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ and we want to please our Savior and our Lord. And so the Apostle John says, little children, listen, he's talking to them as just beloved spiritual children. Little children, abide in Christ so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We don't want to shrink in shame, but we want to have confidence. We, I think we want, we long to see a smile. And we long to hear our, say, our master say, well done. Enter, good job, right? Good job. Enter into my joy. And so we're told to abide in him in light of that day. How do you abide in Christ conveniently? You don't. You don't. Fourth and finally, Paul says the message of the gospel connects us with a living person. Right? Felix came to hear about faith in Christ Jesus. Not just faith generally, not just about faith, let's have a faith dialogue, but faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus says things like, come to me, feed on me, believe in me, abide in me, receive me, listen to me. I think all these are metaphors in some way or another of believing, but they help us understand what believing is. We're coming to a real person. We're receiving a person. We're feeding on a person. We're listening to a person. We're abiding in, remaining in and close to a person. There's no app for this. It just takes not thinking about being convenienced and more. He's a person, which in some ways means convenience is completely irrelevant. Think about this, husbands, okay? <clears throat> we would be more apt to do this in our wives, but if we, if we ever thought that, you know, how can I take my wife out in the most convenient way for me possible? Doesn't it, wouldn't that ruin the date completely? It just doesn't work that way. Several years ago, well, maybe not several, but years ago, five, six years ago, Alyssa took a bunch of girls to Winter Jam for Sabrina's birthday, 13th birthday or something like that. There were a bunch of girls. They all piled into our, however many could fit in our van. Legally, they went down there. And I was really glad Alyssa did that instead of me. Um, one, because it's a bunch of girls. That's just, you know, her, she can do that well. But the other thing is they got home at three in the morning. And when I, when I take kids to winter jam, I'm like, I think it's late if I get home at midnight. And that's just like leaving, getting in the car, sitting in traffic and driving home. She was there till three in the morning. You might say, why was she there so late? Well, they all wanted to stand in these really long lines to meet some of the musicians. I think Toby Mack was there, Lecrae, some musicians they really wanted to meet. I don't know about you, but standing in really long lines is about as inconvenient a thing as I can think of. 
They didn't care. They wanted to meet them. They wanted to meet these people they admired, they looked up to. Well, faith in Christ unites you and I to the most amazing person in the universe. It's not about convenience. Is it? Well, it must not be. It can't be. And not only does it unite us to Jesus, most importantly, it unites us to Jesus, but because we're united to Jesus, every single promise and blessing God ever intends to give to his people comes with him. That's what Romans 8.32 says. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I mean, it's amazing. They all come in Christ, but most importantly, we get him and with him and in him all things. In all seriousness and and love, you and I have immortal souls. You know, when is it convenient to care about it, care about our souls? Felix never found the time and he died in his sins. He came, he was, he was so close. I mean, he's in the presence of the Apostle Paul. The grace of God came to him turned away. His conscience was pricked. He had an emotional response when he heard the message Paul preached, and he said, this is getting a little too close for comfort. This is a little inconvenient. To deal with this, it might take some time. And I don't want to give it right now. So he said, Paul, please leave. When it's convenient, I'll call you again. A Christianity of convenience is no Christianity at all. It's completely devoid of Christ. He's not in it. And I fear that many that pack into churches, I say this with all love, I mean, and it's, 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 I'm sure it's, anyways, I fear many that pack into churches respond to Jesus in just the same way as Felix or much the same way as Felix. They hear their conscience is wounded or they feel like, I think God's like addressing me. But they quickly move to rid themselves of the discomfort or they assure themselves everything's okay and say there will be a more convenient time later. And just to be honest, this is the way I lived my entire childhood. My entire childhood. I mean, up through early adulthood. I wanted to go to heaven, but Jesus was inconvenient. And I thought I could have heaven without an inconvenient Jesus. God was incredibly gracious to me, though very patient, and he's patient with us. 
Here's what the Bible says. When is the time to deal honestly with God? Right now. Which day of the week? Today. Not Sunday. Whatever day it happens to be today. Right? Today is the day to let God deal with you, to, to be real with God, to draw near to God, to, to look to Christ. Tomorrow may be too late. I think that's inferred by 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. Paul says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For God says, in a favorable time, I have listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day to receive God's grace. That's coming to you. Just a little sidebar here. If you've ever read Paul's letters, often his letters begin with this greeting, grace to you. Why? Because when God speaks, it's grace coming to us. It's grace coming to us. So now, today is the day to receive God's grace. But not just one day, as in like March 31st, 2019, like I did that that day. But each and every day that follows. Right? And this is where the body of Christ comes in. Like, you know, the, the church is not just like, hey, let's get together and have this one day where we just have a great service together. But the, the body of Christ is we are growing up together in Christ. And so the body of Christ is so important in this regard. Hebrews 3.13 says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. So on March 31st and on April 2nd and on, and on May 13th and every day in between all those dates and after, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Why? He gives us a reason that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The Puritans used to say that the Christian life, a lot of the Christian life is heart work. And that's just, you know, it's like work inside of us. There's no shortcut for that. There's no magic pill, no smartphone app. To settle for a convenient Christianity is to settle for a cheap imitation. And I just, I just implore you, as I do myself, let's not settle for that. A cheap imitation with a partial Jesus, which is no Jesus at all. Not of the scriptures. So don't wait for convenience. Now Christ calls you to respond to him by looking to him with a lively, living faith in him and all that he's accomplished for you. And now he's calling you to walk with him through his word and spirit day after day, responding to him, living faith and real obedience, living faith and real obedience to him. Let's pray.